0: with two people who actually think that Ukraine could win, which right now is uh, it's sounding more and more like a minority view. Uh, so Mike Ryan, Rose guttmiller uh, which one of you want to sort of just take us through the article?
1: As we're taking stock of where things stand with the war in Ukraine, uh, the maps that have gone up on uh news shows all over the United States have sh- shown that really the line hasn't moved, that the much vaunted counteroffensive that the Ukrainians undertook last summer has failed to achieve much in the way of territorial gains. And so there's no question that the the war is, is stalemated. But to me what people haven't been paying attention to is the uh really significant success that the Ukrainians have achieved Uh, in places where they have had some maneuverability at sea and in the air. And they have essentially been able to deny the Russians uh, the use of Sevastopol, the military naval base on the peninsula of Crimea that that was the reason they invaded in 2014 right they wanted Crimea to be theirs and so that they could use the naval base without any uh any regard for Ukraine or certainly having to pay Ukraine any rent for it so now they are actually denied uh use of of uh, bases all across Crimea by the way the Ukrainians have been very clever using both their power at sea but also their air power and indigenous missile capability, and also missile capability that they're acquiring from NATO allies. So there's been a significant success in uh, control of airspace and control at sea, but people aren't taking account of that. So Mike and I started talking about it and thinking, hmm, if there's a chance to renew mobility uh, in uh, the ground setting as well, uh, can we translate that success uh, strategically and operationally uh, denying the Russians impunity in the air and at sea, can we help them, the Ukrainians then, to uh, get moving again on land? And Mike, uh, I thought, really uh, had some good ideas that cast back to how NATO was thinking about this back during the Warsaw Pact era. So, Mike, over to you.
0: Yeah, and Mike, if you don't mind just telling a little bit, you know, who you are also, so the audience knows. Uh, Rose, I apologize, I should have asked you for the same
2: Yeah, thank you. Now, I started my Air Force career as an A-10 pilot in the central region in Europe uh, at the height of the Cold War in the early 1980s. And of course, we were confronted then, as Rose mentioned, with the potential onslaught of a Soviet-backed Warsaw Pact and thousands and thousands of tanks coming against us in echelon. And the A-10 and a few other forward elements of the Army were really the covering force to try to blunt the assault and then contribute to the ability of the army to maneuver on the battlefield where we could use superior weaponry and superior firepower uh, to outmaneuver and therefore defeat these massive echelons of Soviet troops that were coming at us that were all covered by layered air defenses. So when Rose and I were talking, uh, her analysis, which I think is exactly right about the Ukrainians' ability to succeed in the sea and in the air, brought me back to those days where we had the same challenge. And so from that experience, I also went to work with the Army on the ground on this uh, concept that we call the Joint Air Attack Team. I spent most of my career in Europe and then uh, was working at headquarters U.S. European Command as a senior leader, but also at the U.S. mission to NATO and at NATO headquarters as a senior leader, which is where I got to meet Rose. So with that background, we had this discussion, as Rose mentioned, and I thought about what drove us to develop this Joint Air Attack Team concept. And it was really necessity Because we had great weapons, but we didn't have enough of them. And we had an enemy that was fairly predictable in what they were going to do and fairly doctrinal. It's the same challenge that the Ukrainians have. They have very good weaponry, perhaps not enough. They have a very innovative spirit. And they're using the weapons that we're giving them and the weapons they're developing in really ways we hadn't thought about which is what the Joint Air Attack Team did. We used attack helicopters and uh, close air support aircraft like the A-10, but others, and artillery in ways that we really hadn't thought about. And it came down to the Army and the Air Force talking together about how we could stay out of each other's way first. We really, because, you know, on a battlefield, there's a lot of stuff flying through the air, and you first have to stay out of each other's way. And then we realized once we learned about each other's tactics that we could combine those tactics and do great things. And so the genesis of our conversation led to the idea that the United States and our European allies through NATO can, can can continue to help the Ukrainians deal with battlefield complexity. First, staying out of each other's way, and then building some combined effects, some synergistic effects using the weapons they have in ways that perhaps those weapons weren't intended to be used. And so that's where we started to think about uh, the Ukrainian mindset, demonstrated Ukrainian success. And I took a look at the list of security assistance, so all the weapons that the United States and the Europeans have been giving to the Ukrainians, and it's classic force on force, what we refer to as heavy metal, tanks and artilleries just slugging it out in the trenches. And it's no wonder we've gotten to where we are, because that's the kind of thing that we've been giving the Ukrainians. So with some adjustments to our security cooperation perspective and to our interactions with the Ukrainians, building on their demonstrated success at sea and in the air, and with a view towards the fact that the Ukrainians have limited numbers, and the Russians are continuing continuing to increase their number. How can the Ukrainians exploit this Russian proclivity to just throw soldiers forward and take casualties? And how can the Ukrainians then get local superiority where they can overwhelm the static defenses? because they've done a great job of treating the logistics chains and the chains of command and the supply depots behind the lines. It's at the line where the Ukrainians need to find an advantage. And so that was what we were thinking.
0: So you mentioned specifically um, that uh, we're talking about things like drones and I mean, truly, you know, the modern high tech warfare rather than tanks and what. Did the Ukrainians, I mean, how did they render sea power and take it off the table? I think I don't really understand. Uh, You say, you know, really, that's been a big success. Um, But I don't know what the Russians aren't doing that they would like to be doing. So if you could sort of explain how it's what's happening and how it happened, that'd be really great.
1: Way to talk about it is to talk about what happened after the grain deal shut down last summer. Remember that uh, at that point the Russians were being very uncooperative. They stopped uh, carrying out the uh, the regularized inspections. They they were slow rolling everything, and in the end of the day, they just pulled the plug on the UN sponsored grain deal. Mm-hmm. And and they said at the same time, and any commercial ship that comes into the Black Sea, we will consider a potential target, potentially carrying weapons to the Ukrainians. So the Ukrainians at that point said, uh-uh, no, we are going to figure out another way. We are going to figure out a way to ensure that we can continue to get our grain and other foodstuffs out of our ports, even while the ports are being pounded by by Russian missiles. We are going to figure out a way to continue commercial uh, shipments uh, and also uh, also, uh, getting, um, interesting that they're, they're, obviously the Ukrainians are big in, in, uh, metal production too, metallurgy and getting metal products out in addition to foodstuffs. So it's a, it's been a way for them to keep their economy ticking over. But they went about it by establishing an air defense zone, essentially along the coast from Odessa uh, to where the NATO territory picks up at Romania. And uh, they said, basically, we're going to be able to protect this zone out to 100 kilometers and you can operate here, commercial ships. And they talked to the shipping companies, they talked to the insurance companies. They got everybody to agree. And then once the ships are approaching NATO uh basically nato territory and nato uh nato uh, uh literal as well along the black sea coast then the russians didn't dare to attack commercial shipping in in that zone as well and so it has been with some fits and starts clearly the russians continue to pound the the ports uh and there have been worries about them placing mines in this area but the ukrainians have exercised i i would say significant sea control to ensure their commercial shipping uh, over the holidays, I was reading that over four hundred ships approaching five hundred ships now have passed out of the Black Sea from Ukrainian ports so essentially, they thumbed their noses at the russians and said we don 't need your grain deal anymore we 're going to do this by exercising control of the sea uh, for the commercial shipping lines and the insurance companies have bought it so I think that 's a good example of how the ukrainians have gone about uh, have gone about establishing sea control and they 've been doing the same thing with airspace. I want to stress that you know the drones are not such high tech drones the the Ukrainians are great missileers. Uh, they were the ones who built the gigantic Soviet era ICBMs like the SS eighteen what NATO calls the satan ICBM huge thing that can carry has carried ten or more warheads uh, so the the uh, Ukrainians know all about missiles but they 've taken that down to a very fine grain in turning out a lot of drones, thousands of drones, uh, sometimes in in very low tech kinds of workshops.
3: Right. I want to stress because when we say drone, I think a lot of people have in their the image in their mind of like the Bayraktar or a Reaper, uh, but Ukraine is making incredible use of a lot of this off the shelf stuff. They are dro- and they're dropping. It's just a quadcopter dropping munitions on top of a tank, right?
1: Which has been just. Uh, a game changer for them on the ground, right? They've been using everything they can get their hands on. They've been uh, building stuff themselves. So, yeah, there's no question about it. that It it goes from the very low-tech up to the very high-tech capabilities that some of the NATO countries have been supplying.
2: All right, so it's this concept which they applied uh, to Sevastopol, which has been a key aspect of their ability to ship grain, as Rose was speaking about. Putting Sevastopol at risk has forced the Russians to move a lot of their weapon systems further and further away from the drain corridor that's coming out of uh, Ukraine with the shipping that Rose talked about. So all of this goes hand in hand, and it shows the level of complexity of the Ukrainian strategists and how they're very carefully moving forward on many, many, many fronts at the same time. And so if we apply that to the ground warfare, again, thinking about drones Because the idea is to achieve an asymmetric overmatch in a specific place in order to, A, surprise the Russians, B, to provide enough mass that localized Russian forces that are facing this Ukrainian onslaught can't, can't deal with it. While at the same time, using their deeper fires to interrupt the ability of the Russians to reinforce and to interrupt their command and control so they don't understand what's going on. And so that's what they've been doing at sea. To some degree, in the air.
0: Now we're applying that to the land. What did you call it? Asymmetric over. Asymmetric overmatch. I love that. I, I you know, that's. I uh, apologize for my ignorance, but that's a new phrase to me, and I, I, <laughs> I think I'm going to use it now in a variety of places where it's completely inappropriate. Uh,
2: <laughs> it could get added to meeting bingo some. if you're successful. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so people really did think. I, I didn't know. What had happened? I knew that the grain deal was off. I didn't know how so much grain was actually getting out.
1: It's amazing yeah. they've done an incredible job, and uh, you know, partially it's it's what Mike was talking about that they've uh, had to move their naval ships back to Novorossiysk on the Russian mainland rather than having them forward on the Crimean Crimean Peninsula and Sevastopol and in, in other. Uh, uh, naval bases there. But uh, part of it is just the fact that uh, I think also, and let's remember to be honest that the Russians too need to ship grain and they need to get their grain out of the Black Sea also. So there is a little bit of a mutual interest here as well. They can't have they can't be shooting at each other's commercial vessels in the end of the day if either wants to succeed at shipping grain. Yeah, I should note
3: that we're having this conversation on the twelfth. Last night, uh, a coalition of Western forces began an attack on the Houthis in the Red Sea. Uh, It's it it does strike me as um, the Russian calculate like you don't attack international shipping, right? Because everyone's calculations change, Uh, and and Ukraine's partners may have a very different view of Russia uh, and what they're willing to do militarily if suddenly. Grain shipments are getting to the rest of the world, right?
1: Yes, and I think it's very interesting that parallel as well to consider right now with what the the Houthis are up to and and the amount of really uh, cooperation among uh, NATO and Western powers that has had to be put in place to ensure that uh, that shipping does continue through the the Red Sea and the the um, Suez Canal. It's interesting looking back. Remember the uh, Somali pirates back ten years ago? Mm-hmm. Uh, they were not using such high tech stuff. They were basically boarding and and taking hostages, but you know, really interrupting shipping along the Somali coast uh, and the Horn of Africa at that at that point. But that was a very effective international coalition that shut them down. Now we've got a higher tech problem because these guys are using missiles. So what
0: happened with? the spring that became the summer that didn't become the winter offensive um i mean did it and i guess what i'm more interested in is the political aspect how much was ukraine counting on success how much was actually joe biden counting on success in order to keep people the aid flowing and and uh, people's morale up outside of ukraine as well as inside
1: well, I'll be interested to hear Mike's comment on this. My uh, view is that the biggest problem is uh, the, the Russians had months in which to build up their defenses, uh, to defend their forward lines, to to put in minefields in depth, and to ensure that the Ukrainians couldn't punch through uh, quickly, even if they uh, were able to mass a, a huge amount of force that, that they would be stymied uh, because they wouldn't have the ability to to get through those minefields so i think that one of the i'm concerned that one of the problems about the major offensive was that we built up this notion of ukrainian success over some months while the russians were actually digging in and uh that created an impossible situation for the ukrainians to overcome but but mike what's your what's your comment on this
2: well first of all i do completely agree with Rose and we have to think about why the Russians were given that much time. Mm -hmm. There was a great expectation when the Ukrainians were able to turn the tables on the Russians, push them very far away from Kiev and then collapse the Northern part of the Russian flank. That actually, in my view, coupled with the need to deal with the potential for escalation vis-a-vis the Russians and their nuclear threats, slowed down the supply chains. And we had a lot of discussion over, do we give them M1s? Do we give them tanks? Do we give them F-16s? Do we give them this? Do we give them that? Any one of those or any group of those weapon systems, had we started to give them to the Ukrainians as soon as they started to show success, would have arrived in time to interrupt some of the Russian preparations. And the Russians have been in eastern Ukraine for a long time, and they have a lot of defensive positions. But they really were given the time because of our hardiness in supplying Ukraine with the things that they needed to really mount an offensive when the opportunity still existed to have an impact. And again, the Russian morale, the whole Russian supply system, the Russian political system had not yet reset to the point where they had the resolve to stand up to it. And so there was a moment there where exploitation was possible. And I really think we missed the moment mostly out of self-deterrence, but also out of a Mm a real misunderstanding of how long it takes uh, to move significant amounts of military equipment that far to get the Ukrainians spun up on how to use them effectively and to get the munition supply lanes out to the front. Because when you're in combat, you use more munitions than you think you're going to. And so there's always a shortage. And had we been able to envision the demands of a successful Ukrainian offensive, and supply them accordingly on the schedule that would have been a mismatch for the Russians' ability to reconstitute, then we would have been in a better position. But I completely agree with Rose. The Initial Ukrainian success created such high expectations that the Ukrainians were invincible and that the equipment we'd already given them was sufficient that we forgot (coughs) to think in terms of Russian military history that they always get their clock cleaned early. But they reconstitute very, very quickly, <laughs> and they come back with a vengeance. And it's that vengeance that we're dealing with now.
1: I want to uh, really uh, footstomp that point because uh, Putin has very proudly and publicly put his whole economy on a war footing now with mm-hmm. everything from you know bakeries to bicycle shops now turning out drones themselves uh, in, in Russia. They do have – uh, that kind of capability to command the economy that, uh, well, not many other countries want to make those moves because they have other concerns about uh, social welfare and so forth. But, but Putin's moved in that direction. The other thing I want to pick up on is a point Mike made about nuclear threats. I have read, and this is in the media, it's, it's public, uh, that there was a moment when uh, the Ukrainians were driving south as well in, uh, the fall, uh, of, uh, of last year, were driving south and getting very close to crossing the Nipper River, the Dnipro River, and breaking through Russian lines down uh, toward the south. And apparently our intelligence agencies at that point judged that Putin actually asked his general staff about using nuclear weapons, uh, to try to halt the Ukrainian advance. Uh, apparently, the general staff advised him that nuclear weapons would not have that kind of utility in this case. Uh, I don't know the full details, but I do think that there was a uh, a significant nuclear threat at that point that did raise a lot of concerns in Washington and across the NATO allies as well. And I think that too had an effect. You talked about self-deterrence, Mike, but I do think it was a real concern about how do we prevent this thing from going nuclear? Because that's not going to be good for anybody. And so um, there was, I think, uh, a breaking effort, a bit of a breaking effort that also might have affected the flow of, uh, of assistance to Ukraine at that point. But you're quite right, Mike, also that it just takes time and it took time to get the Ukrainians <laughs> trained up on the Western equipment, on the NATO-supplied equipment. Uh, and so um, that's that, too, was a very important factor.
2: Yeah, Jason, I also think it's important. Self-deterrence is not necessarily a negative. I mean, it's what responsible people do. They have to reflect on the worst-case scenarios and the potential consequences, particularly dealing with someone as unpredictable in a predictable way as President Putin. And... Uh, they are more privy to information that we don't have. And so one has to give them the benefit of the doubt on this. And then you couple that with the situation that Rose rightly pointed out where there was a real understanding that has been made public, that this was a situation that's tailor made for tactical nuclear weapons. And then you think about what is the end game in Russia if Putin loses and how does that affect everything? And since, His prospects should he lose aren't really tremendous from his personal point of view. You really have to understand that he at some point he goes all in. And with the economy as a as a command economy now being on a complete war footing, we might say that he's all in, which raises the stakes.
1: Does
3: that mean you think that he may use nuclear weapons?
1: They seem to have broken uh, or dialed back from their nuclear saber-rattling that was going on during the first year of the war and into uh, into last fall. They seem to really have dialed back on that uh, with the um, notion that, uh, well, they seem to be doing all right. Uh, and Putin expected the West to flag at some point and our attention to turn elsewhere. And so he's excellent at playing the waiting game. And so for him... He's on, you know. He's generally uh, in a positive place at the moment. Uh, things are on a roll from his perspective, and so he's able to dial back the nuclear threats.
3: Hmm. Well, and where else is there for them to go at this point, other than launching one? Right, you know, these the this cable TV over there is full of a uh, uh, of veiled, not veiled over, over nuclear threats. They pulled out of all of the treaties. Um, They are talking about possibly doing, you know, testing again, if America does testing again, uh, it's, it's constant over there. I I don't know much more that he could do that wouldn't be just deploying one, but I don't know that that would, I, again, I think that would like the shipping things It would change the calculations of everybody. Right. It would, and I don't know if, uh, how threatened he feels at the moment.
1: It's like he's succeeding without having to to move forward uh, mm. with uh, these nuclear uh, saber rattling events. Uh, I grant you that uh, over on the, the media side that, that some of that continues, but I, I just see it as being dialed way back from where it was a year ago, certainly. And so I think that, that that in in general is a good thing, but it's a sign that, that Putin feels uh, that he's, I think, in a commanding position at the moment, and he just has to, to wait us out.
3: All right, Angry Planet listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. We'll be right back after this.
1: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
0: That's the sound of another sale on Shopify. In-store. Shopify POS is everything you need to sell in person. From payments to inventory, Shopify unites your sales into one commerce platform. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify.com slash Retail23. Shopify.com slash Retail23. All right, Angry Planet listeners, welcome back. I, I have to admit, I don't know what success and failure look like anymore. Um, I, I don't know. Are we still on the Ukrainian side talking about expelling the Russians from all Ukrainian territory? And if Putin loses, does it mean that he loses that territory? And anyway, I'm, I, you know what I mean? I'm just not sure what – used to, it used to feel so clear, <laughs> and now I'm not even sure what it is that we're all trying to accomplish.
1: Success for the Ukrainians, first, uh, first and foremost, you're right to say, okay, what does that success look like? My own personal view is, of this is, as many in Washington say, the Ukrainians will let us know when they're, when they're feeling at a good enough position that they're in a strong, uh, they're in a strong place to negotiate. And I think that that's, uh, first and foremost, the, the most important consideration. It doesn't mean that every Russian soldier, as Zelensky is fond of saying, every Russian soldier has to be expelled from every centimeter of Ukrainian territory. I think it is going to be very, very important, no matter what, for Ukraine not to give up on the principle of its territorial integrity and sovereignty and the United States and NATO allies and, and partners must do everything they can to continue to support that principle uh, on the side of the of the Ukrainians. We forget that throughout the Cold War and the 70 years of, of the Soviet Union, uh, after they seized the Baltic states, uh, the United States never acknowledged or recognized that the Baltic states were part of the USSR. And that was a sore point, a very sore point with the USSR. But I think it's that kind of position that we have to uh, sustain. And maybe it's going to be for the long haul. I certainly hope not. But we have to sustain that position.
2: Excuse me, Jason, let me just jump in right there. Uh, Of course, I agree with Rose. But from a military planning point of view, The lack of a clearly stated strategic objective for NATO allies and the United States military that allows us then to backwards plan to determine what sorts of equipment, what sorts of training and assistance we need to continue to give to the Ukrainian armed forces puts us in a gray area where we tend to just give them whatever we have available as opposed to designing a winning strategy based on a clear objective. So if we think From a U.S. point of view and our needs to deal with the Russians and the Chinese moving forward, where's the intersection between a negotiated settlement that the Ukrainians are willing to live with that does all the things that Rose talked about and our ability to help them get there based on a clear statement of our own objectives in the conflict? Because again, a clear statement of our own objectives then tells our military forces and our allies how to help the Ukrainians achieve that negotiated statement. So that's, I think, where the conversation needs to go so that what the Ukrainians define as victory, we believe is achievable, one of the reasons for our article, and that we then align our assistance to help them get there. Because without defining as you said, you don't understand what that is. So that does actually relate back to the nuclear issue, because as we've seen this week, the Russians and the Belarusians have now uh, stated that they have a nuclear capability resident in Belarus or soon to have one. And we've never really made a serious effort to negotiate away the Russian tactical nuclear arsenal, because to defend a country as large as they are, they need that arsenal. Uh, Otherwise, they're going to have a huge military uh, because of the way they perceive their own strategic vulnerabilities. But those are area denial weapons. Russian troops aren't really able to operate in an environment at which a tactical nuclear weapon has been used. And therefore, they're more defensive than offensive. And if Putin's goal is to take over the entire territory of Ukraine and use it as part of greater Russia, and using tactical nuclear weapons in there is not going to help him achieve that aim and i think the general staff made that very clear
0: to him is is that what victory still looks like to him do you think the complete and utter surrender of ukraine or is it just about
3: what holding says, on to luhansk donetsk all the stuff that he already took yeah mm-hmm.
1: um he still you know when asked will talk about denazification uh, demilitarization of Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera. Denazification is code word for regime change, for you know, getting rid of the current uh, Ukrainian government under President Zelensky. Uh, frankly, I think that those uh, initial objectives have already been denied to him. When Russia failed to take Kiev in the opening month of the war, I think that those strategic objectives were denied uh, to Putin and to uh, the Russian. Regime. So how exactly he thinks about his strategic objectives now, uh, he'll continue to articulate those denazification, demilitarization, neutral status for Ukraine. But I'm not sure that the Kremlin or he believes them anymore. I would so actually,
0: add, I did ask the right question.
2: <laughs> I would just add, uh, because he is so agile, demonstrates guile at every turn, there's probably a difference between what he would like to have and what he's willing to accept in the near term. Mm -hmm. Because you don't need to put the economy on a war footing and take the casualties that they're taking to hold the line in Ukraine. And they're not really operating from the standpoint of we need to restore uh, Russian superiority to Ukraine, excuse me, to Crimea and the Black Sea in order to uh, consolidate our gains in eastern Ukraine. We thought for many, many years before offensive operations renewed in Ukraine in 2022, that they would take more of eastern Ukraine, they would take the land bridge to Crimea, and they would try to push to Odessa. And that would be sufficient because that enhances Russia's strategic position and gives it really all the cards in the region. But that's military strategy. It's not necessarily Putin's thinking. So I don't see them yet um, changing their approach to one of consolidating their gains. They still are very offensively oriented. How long they're able to maintain that uh, remains to be seen. Uh, So I think there's a difference between what he aspires to and what he's objectively willing to accept for the time being based on the realities that are confronting him, if he sees the reality at all
1: it's all about uh, his personal survival, which is something Mike has already mentioned. He can declare victory probably at any point and say, we've achieved our goals. And that's it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He essentially needs to have enough uh, face saved to um, stay in power and not himself be subjected to a coup or, you know, Rapid, uh, rapid ejection from his position as, as president of the Russian Federation. I don't see any sign of that happening. He's been very successful at consolidating power, strengthening the security services and bringing them, uh, bringing them to heel, particularly after the defeat of Prigozhin and the, the Wagner attempted. Well, it wasn't a coup. It was a march on Moscow last, last summer. And, uh, when, once Prigozhin's uh, assassination was complete with a plane accident late in the summer. I think uh, Putin was definitely back, uh, the man on top of the heap.
0: It's so Byzantine. Uh, I mean, you know, the the way he even went about getting rid of Prigozhin was was fascinating. I mean, that he had to give him the handshake first, then blow up his plane. I mean,
1: <laughs> it's just so.
0: Sometimes you want to look the other guy in the eye, right? Right. I guess.
1: Yeah, you can't make this stuff up.
0: You really can't. It's funny to look at how much they've invested in this war versus how much they have invested in prior wars. You know, we talk about how they've, you know, they're raising 300,000 troops or they're trying to get, you know, another. They're actually opening the prisons, as you know. And and I've actually the Washington Post had a horrible article. Well done, but a horrible article about some of the mass killers. (laughs) <laughs> they've actually now allowed into their front lines um i just find it fascinating that you know they were able to raise tens of millions of people and now they're you know they, they're they having a, some trouble filling up ranks in the hundreds of thousands uh, it just sort of does that mean there's some level of commitment that or some danger to putin that uh, we should be taking into account
1: I think has uh, thought hard about the reaction to the mobilization in September of 2022. when uh, they tried mass mobilization, 700,000 able-bodied young men, uh, cream of the crop, many of them you know working in the IT industries and and other high technology industries they they left the country and went elsewhere. <laughs> and uh, so, and and that was a point at which there was, I think, con- real concern in uh, in Putin's uh, coterie about uh, about public, uh, the public turning against the war. What he's tried to do, he and his guys have tried to do, is essentially make this um, a a not a war, but a an operation, a special military operation. And you, the public of Russia, you don't need to worry about it. It's just off there in the distance. It's not going to affect the way you live. Uh, You can just remain indifferent to it. But if he tried another mobilization, he would – He, I think they continue to fear he would uh, again – maybe see the public finally begin to rise up and oppose the war. So uh,
0: hmm. in the okay. end
1: of the day, they've tried all these other ways, and these people are being brought out of prisons. These horrible criminals are being brought out of prison and signing contracts to go and fight. And then when their contracts are up, Uh, Essentially, their prison terms are being forgiven and they're ending up back in the communities, which is what is so horrific. And I know women in Russia who have been abused by these men are are concerned that they're they're walking free. So, yeah, there (laughs) there could be problems emerging from from that approach eventually. Mm -hmm. But I think it's a lesser evil for for Putin and and the guys in the Kremlin than another attempt at mass mobilization and a a big, uh, a big uh, effort of that kind.
2: Well, Jason, also think the previous uh, excursions Putin has engaged in uh, after his disastrous and then victorious attempts in Chechnya have really been to create frozen conflicts to keep Georgia and others away from embracing the West and becoming members of NATO, as well as his adventurism in Africa, for example, with the Wagner Group and in other parts of the world, coupled with the disinformation campaigns coupled with his uh, on off again relationship with China and Xi Jinping, which is now much to his detriment, which is something that we can't forget. So it's more of a long-term campaign to negate the advantages of the United States and its Western allies and Asian allies in an advance of more authoritarian, friendly attitudes in the global South and elsewhere. So we're very focused on Ukraine, but we have to look at it from Putin's master gamesmanship perspective on how not only to advance Russia's interests, but how to weaken the United States and its allies, and how to really change the nature of the global system, which is very much what Xi Jinping is after as well. And so this gets back to what is the U.S. strategic objective in Ukraine? And it has to consider the impact, as you mentioned earlier, on all these other aspects of our foreign policy and how we, we want to lead in the world going forward. And that's why having a pathway to victory in Ukraine is really so vitally important. And as we talked about, that'll be a victory that the Ukrainians determine. But without us stating what that looks like, either having the Ukrainians state it or we state it, it's going to be very hard to know how to support them and, and to get them the right types of weapons and the right types of uh, assistance they need to be able to have the breakthroughs that are required to get to the point where they're willing to uh, take a pause.
1: State, the very staying power of the United States of America and its allies uh, is also very important to model at this at this moment, because I think once again that that notion that uh, the United States and its allies will not stay the course um, that is being watched, it's being expected now uh, by Putin in the Kremlin, but also being watched very carefully in in Beijing as they consider their future options and particularly with regard to Taiwan. So I think there are a lot of ways that it uh, is important for the United States and its NATO allies to to stay the course uh, in working with Ukrainians.
0: The world does look more dangerous. I mean, the U.S. seems involved on more fronts than I can actually remember. Um, I mean, you know, I, I've only been around for half a century. Some of that was the Cold War. I'm not saying that things are worse than ever before, in my opinion. I'm saying, though, that boy, are we engaged on a lot of fronts? And is this in any way sustainable? Is there any will in, among the American people to keep this up and see Ukraine through? Well, I I'll think I'll <laughs> the stab silence speaks volumes.
1: <laughs> Sorry, Matt. Go ahead.
3: I said the silence speaks volumes.
1: Well, I think that's the question we're all grappling with as we enter into this election season. And where is the American voter going to be on this? When you talk to people now on Capitol Hill, uh, you know, both Republicans and Democrats are very supportive of uh, the Ukrainians. But it's a, a particular faction of the Republican Party that is keeping assistance for Ukraine from getting across the finish line and they can do so procedurally. So is that that's not a majority position by any means, but it does mean that uh, influential minorities can have uh can have a big impact on US uh on US policy and where US policy is going to head. So I, I do think that we have to bear that in mind and uh really make the case to the american public through this election period about how important this is for our own future for our own future security and defense
2: well i absolutely agree i think part of the silence was we were deferring to one another <laughs> but i'll stay, <laughs> take a moment to think really with with iran and north korea jumping in on the side of russia and with china's ambitions firmly in focus we have to look at all of these activities and the way Iran is using its proxies in the Middle East and Israel is fighting back. And again, there's majority support for Israel in the in the Congress as well. And we look at the holistic approach to a campaign to, to reduce the power of the United States and the world that's been joined together by the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, the North Koreans, and others. All this activity. May bring us to a culminating point in which our adversaries, who do not have the power that we possess in the United States and in the West, are going to generate so much fear or concern in the American body politic and in our European allies and our Asian allies that we're going to, you know, put the remote for the TV down and start to pay attention. (laughs) We're Mm going to realize Mm -hmm. we're going to have to deal with this collectively and holistically. And we're going to have to go further than we'd like to go, but we see the necessity of going against the Iranians, against the North Koreans, of putting our foot down in the South China Sea, as the Filipinos and the, the Indonesians are doing yesterday with the president of Indonesia in the Philippines, talking about South China Sea. At this culminating point, where our adversaries are seeing an opportunity, based on the Ukraine conflict, and are therefore jumping in on the bandwagon for their own respective interests – To try to build a momentum that they think can overwhelm Western political will, it has to come to a head at some point. And when it comes to a head, we, on our side, not to make it a binary, but it can ultimately become binary. We, on our side, have the power and the capability uh, because we run the global economy. All those ships that the Houthis are firing at, yeah, they're imports for us, but they're exports for other people who care, too. And so if those exports don't get through to the importers, then the people that are exporting it, they'll make the money. So you get the battle for the global south and becomes economic. And as we po- you pointed out earlier, Jason, the power of that uh, economic focus to get people's attention on other things to which they don't normally pay attention is so powerful. But this culminating point that I think we're getting to quite rapidly as other bad actors join in, uh, we saw the expansion of the BRICs. And so now South Africa is a BRIC and now it's suing Israel and the world war. So much of this is related and so much of it is, if you will, part of the plan of the autocratic regimes to change the nature of the global system. That it's going to come to a point where we are going to do something about it. We're going to have to do something collectively about it. And so it takes education of the voters and the American populace and the populations of our uh, allies. And that's one of the things that we're very much engaged in through an organization called Friends of Europe in Brussels really change the narrative back to something positive that looks after our interests and shows our power and our ability to to make a difference and to get the world back on a positive track. And we're very much involved in that. And that's why it's very important to be on your podcast. And thank you again for the invitation. Not that we're at the end of your time, but <laughs> <laughs> wanted to sneak that in there that we really appreciate no, being on your podcast.
0: No, it's it's we're really, really lucky to have you. Um yeah Last thing I I was going to say, and Matthew, then uh, I I see a look on your face, which tells me that you have probably a smarter question than mine. But what I wonder about, you know, when we're talking about these and all the various fronts and the various things that we're doing in a defense budget that's very close to $900 billion this year, um, I worry about every interceptor that we launch. I worry about every rocket and iron dome. All of these various things are so expensive. Every Tomahawk missile that gets launched. Uh, How can we do this for a long time? Can we do this as long as we need to do this in order to keep ourselves and our allies safe and maybe even, you know, put the authoritarian nations uh, back on their heels a little bit?
1: but emphasizing a point that President Trump always was bringing to NATO when I was NATO Deputy Secretary General, and that is that NATO allies of the United States have to bear their their share of the defense burden as well. And I actually think that that is a good result of this dreadful, terrible war in Ukraine that, that Russia has perpetrated. It has driven that message home to the allies that they need to also bear responsibility for their own defense. And we see it in the way defense industries in Europe are are retooling, are getting up and running. And oh, by the way, it's required us to do a considerable amount of modernization and refurbishment of our defense industries as well. We are in it for the long haul. I think there's no no question about it. We are going to have to continue to ensure that that we are ready should we have to face up to uh, malign actors, uh, these authoritarian regimes uh, who seem to feel like uh, this century is their century. So, we need to, I think, continue to de- defend what we stand for, which is the rule of law and predictability for the entire global community, uh, both in terms of economy, but also in terms of, of politics and security. So, um, I think I think that the United States and its allies together need to play that role can't be the United States alone. But uh, I am heartened to see by the experience of the last two years that the Allies have gotten the message, Allies in NATO Europe, but also our Allies in Asia, the ROK and Japan, as well as Australia and New Zealand. So let's, let's see where it goes. But um, definitely, people are paying attention now and ready at least to uh, at least in some sense, to uh, take the right steps in terms of, of resources and, uh, and uh, modernization and, and preparation of defense industries for production over a long period of time. Yeah, Jason, well, I, by way I don't of, like to perpetrate this message, but that's the way it is. I think we do need to be ready. Yeah,
2: Jason, by way of saying yes, there's three points I'd like to make. First is, as Rose just said, yesterday Thierry Breton, the Commissioner for the Internal Market in the European Union, announced that they will meet their goal in early twenty twenty four of creating a million artillery shells for the Ukrainians within the European Union. That's what he said. We'll see, but the effort is there, certainly, and they're really committed to it. And that's from the European Commission that really doesn't have a European security and defense role in the body politic of the European Union. And that's doing that hand in glove with what's going on at NATO. So that's very positive. The second thing is in the ni- early 1930s, the Army Air Force wanted nothing to do with the B-17 because it was too damn expensive. <laughs> and we ended up building thousands of them in World War II. So there is a capacity there based on need. And so the third point I want to make is one of the advantages of having this focus on how well the Ukrainians are doing and how innovative they are, especially in air and sea and how we can apply that to the land is we always in the United States have a lot of weapons in development. We call them black programs. We don't tell anybody about them, uh, but they're always in development. And the reality of the war on the ground in Ukraine and the war in the air and at sea has given impetus to the development of these weapons. And the emphasis in the Congress, particularly in raising the defense budget, is we need to bring these weapons like hypersonics to the inventory faster And these are the types of weapons that really give us an asymmetric overmatch that do things like the F-117 in the first Gulf War that we revealed on the first night of bombing that no one can match. And so we still have that capacity, that innovative ability that no other country can match. We just need the focus and the funding to bring those into the inventory and to get them out in the forces so we can demonstrate that we still are undeniably the world superpower and that all of you better behave. (laughs)
1: also take us back to the point made earlier about uh, how clever the Ukrainians have been about making use of low tech. And yeah, I agree. We need to stay on the technological leading edge. Uh, You can do a whole nother podcast about where artificial intelligence and other uh, new technologies are going to take us on the defense and security front. But I think we need also to remember that uh, a lot of what can be done now is putting together technologies that already exist, that are off the shelf, that uh, need to be perhaps upgraded or or armed in a particular way to be effective on a battlefield. But that is, in the end of the day, what the uh, Ukrainian chief of staff, General Zaluzhny was talking about when he said, uh, look, all of these technologies exist. Uh, we just need to put them together in, in effective ways. And uh, that's what Mike and I were agreeing with in our in our uh, our piece for foreign policy.
2: Yeah, let me just give you an example, Jason. As you mentioned, the Houthis are firing you know forty thousand dollars against the one point two million dollar missile. Yeah, that's the type of thing the Ukrainians are very good at. And one of the things General Zeluzhny, the chief of the Ukrainian Armed Forces, in his piece that came out in the fall, mentioned when you're talking about clearing these massive minefields that the Russians have developed. There's an interesting weapon that drives people crazy in the blogosphere, but it's called a thermobaric bomb. In other words, it's an air explosive. So you put a bunch of fuel vapor in the air right over the ground and you detonate it. It's more powerful than a bomb hitting the ground. And all these mines and these minefields are pressure sensitive and it sets all the mines off. So if you want to clear a way through a minefield and these thermobaric bombs, they're just fuel. They're not that expensive. But you have to get the localized air superiority that we talked about to be able to deliver them. So when he talks about low-cost, low-tech mine clearing in order to open avenues of approach, this is the type of thing he's asking for. Because the Ukrainians have really thought about this. They really know how to do the types of things we're talking about. We just need to get them the right weapons. And he has a very good laundry list of those weapons. For example, medium-range service their missile simulators. What does that do? It makes the Russian pilots think there's a real missile threat there, and so they don't go there. And that's a good thing. It's a very low-cost non-kinetic way to clear the space so that the Ukrainians can move forward. And again, it is as Rose pointed out quite rightly, low tech it's what the Ukrainians are good at, which we should be giving them instead of focusing on I mean we have to focus on the high end, we have to focus on the heavy armor for ourselves. For ourselves. Uh, But also to give the Ukrainians the means to exploit the opening, but to create these openings, to get that asymmetric overmatch in very localized places where they can exploit what they've already done, uh, it can be low cost. We just need to get it after it and start doing it.
1: Let me just, uh, before we leave thermobaric weapons behind, let me just point out that the Russians, uh, at certain points in this war, have been using these against civilian targets. And I, I absolutely want to condemn that. What Mike is talking about is, is using them, obviously, in non-populated areas that are minefields in order to, to clear the mines. I think the way the Russians have been using them in certain um, civilian settings has been barbaric.
3: Absolutely. Thank you,
1: Rose. We've kind of, you've kind of
3: walked back to this, which is perfect. Uh, I, I want to go back to kind of the beginning of the conversation. Say you're talking to an uh let's say you're talking to an obstinate lawmaker or an undecided voter. What is the simple story you tell them? Not about why
1: Ukraine should win, um, but about how. I'd say to them, don't just look at that map that's going up of the stalemate. But look at how clever the Ukrainians have been at using what we've given them, but also what they've got to really put the Russians on the run uh, in particular settings. And the example I love to point to, again, is Crimea, where the Russians grabbed it back in 2014, said it's ours, and we're going to keep it. And now they can't really exploit it because of what the Ukrainians have done. So let's give the Ukrainians uh, credit and see what we can do to help them bust out of the stalemate. That's how I'd put it.
2: Now, what I would say, Matthew, is it looks like the Russians have built an impenetrable wall. How do you take down a wall? Well, one brick at a time. How many bricks do you have to take out of the wall before you can knock it over? If you take the right bricks out, not many. And if you take them all out in one place, you can collapse the wall pretty quickly. And that's what the Ukrainians have been working at. They've been working very diligently against that wall. They've been very diligently working on the other side of the wall to prevent a reinforcement of that wall. Now we just need to give them the wherewithal to punch a hole because the wall is ready to go if we do the right things. So it is possible. There is a pathway. We just have to be smart about it and exploit what the Ukrainians have already learned and what they're willing to do and what they uh, can amaze us in doing with the things that we give them.
0: All right. Well, uh, Michael Ryan and Rose Guttenweller, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate uh, you walking us through all this uh, <laughs> complex. And But thank you uh, for making it a little less depressing than I was expecting. <laughs> You're so quite welcome. Do
1: that. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Jason. Matt.
3: Thank you. Thank, thank you, See Jason. You soon, thank Mike. you, Matt.
2: Thank you, Rose. See you soon.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of Angry Planet. The show is produced with love by Matthew Galt and Jason Fields with the assistance of Kevin O'Dell. This is the place where we ask you for money. If you subscribe to us on substack.angryplanet.com, it means the world to us. The show, which we've been doing for more than seven years now, means the world to us, and we hope it means a lot to you. We're incredibly grateful to our subscribers. Please feel free to ask us questions, suggest show ideas, or just say hi. $9 a month may sound like a big ask, but it helps us to do the show on top of everything else that we do. We'd love to make Angry Planet a full-time gig and bring you a lot more content. If we get enough subscriptions, that's exactly what we'll do. But even if you don't subscribe... We're grateful that you listen. Many of you have been listening since the beginning, and seriously, that makes it worth doing the show. Thank you for listening, and look for another episode next week. Stay safe. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify. In store. Shopify POS is everything you need to sell in person. From payments to inventory, Shopify unites your sales into one commerce platform. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify.com slash Retail23. Shopify.com slash Retail23.